Hello and welcome to Banter, the official podcast of the American Enterprise Institute. I'm Phoebe Keller, the head of AEI's media department, and I'm here with AEI President Robert Doerr. We'll be your Banter co-hosts. Each week, we'll take you inside our think tank for conversations with leading policymakers and thinkers about today's pressing policy issues. Thanks for tuning in. Joining us today on Banter is Derek Scissors, who's a senior fellow with us at AEI. He studies the Chinese and Indian economies and U.S. economic relations with Asia. He's also the chief economist of the China Beige Book and the author of the China Global Investment Tracker. He's also one of the three authors on our New China Playbook series at AEI. Welcome to Banter, Derek. Thanks for having me. It's great to have Derek. You know, he was he was selling China before anybody. I mean, he was mm-hmm. out on China way before all those selling Goldman meaning, Sachs guys. Shorting, not, shorting, yeah. not shorting. trying to hawk China. No, yes. sorry, I meant I meant shorting. That's right. I wish I'd gotten that right. That fancy smart guy lingo. It's always a little tricky for me. So, Derek, given your expertise on China, and we've got a lot to talk about in that. That's probably maybe the most significant big issue. The, the country faces over the next 25 years. How do you react to Modi's visit from India and this sort of new fascination with India, all that sort of warmth showed toward India, and what is its implications with regard to China? A lot to talk about there. A lot of people are concerned about the deteriorating human rights situation in India. I think there's reason for that. There's evidence of religious intolerance growing in India. It's not my area of expertise. I think it's generally a good idea for the U.S. to have a good relationship with India. I think we should try to do that while while keeping to our principles with regard to religious freedom and other things. But I would caution everyone that the U.S.-India relationship is not going to be as important as you want because India is not going to be as important as you want. And the reason for that is economics. People look at India's young, growing labor force and they think, wow, India has a lot of potential, and it does. But it hasn't been realizing that potential to now, and there's no sign it's going to do so in the future. India should have should already be booming. When I started studying India in 2008, they were telling me they wanted a sustained period of 10% GDP growth. Then it was nine, then it was eight, then it was seven, and now they're in the sixes. This is the time for fast rising Indian growth. We haven't seen it. We haven't seen it for the last 15 years. I can go into detail why we're not probably going to see it for the next 15 years. So India is going to do okay. It's going to grow faster than other large economies, but it's much poorer than other large economies. And it's not really going to catch up. And though people who are thinking of India as the next superpower, they're completely wrong. But as a trading partner, in other words, you're also a, a great proponent of decoupling with China. Decoupling is a term that you may be created. As I said, you were early on the shorting of China. But are you saying that India cannot replace what China does for the world with regard to their exports? In principle, they can. In practice, they're not, and they're not moving in that direction. So the labor force is India's labor force looks better. It's it's roughly the same size and it's younger. I mean, wow, that that looks great. So that's the in principle they could replace China. But first of all, India is not as well located. It's kind of farther away from everything. That's just bad geography. It's not adjacent to the Pacific or the Atlantic. And but the but the bigger problems are India's own choices. 
you don't really have clear rights to land in India. So you want to set up a factory, a big factory, and you want to export all over the world. Someone's going to fight you over those land rights, and you're going to be in Indian court for 15 years. And I'm not exaggerating. POSCO, which is a Korean steel company, has had exactly this experience. In India, if you hire more than 300 workers in some Indian states and more than 100 workers in other Indian states, you can't fire any of them without government permission, which means you have a lot of Indian companies with 99 or 299 workers. That's not the scale So are you saying that China is a better business environment than India? I hate saying that because China is a danger to the United States. It's a danger to some of its neighbors, including India. It's a much more repressive country, whatever India's human rights problems are. But yes, it's a better business environment. That's why China has received a lot more investment. That's why it's a much bigger exporter. That's why it's much richer. So that's surprising to hear yeah. from Derek about is, you know, a country that you're very critical of. And you do. Now, let's just turn to that. I have noticed in my optimistic, positive way that there has been some reduction in investment in China and that American companies are pulling back and and maybe China's feeling some pressure from that to change its ways. Am I overly optimistic? Yes, as you very frequently are, Robert. It's a, it's a wonderful attribute, but yes, you're overly optimistic. The reason is that We don't see in Xi Jinping any particular interest in how the Chinese economy is doing, how Chinese markets are doing, what foreign investors think. No interest in that at all. So you're right that people have looked at especially zero COVID, not so much American policy is changing or Xi Jinping is mean to the people of Hong Kong, but the extension of zero COVID for at least an extra year, then it's sudden abandonment have made people think we can't trust the policy coming out of China. And so that part of what you said is absolutely on target. There's much more evaluation of, well, China's not growing as fast, which we kind of knew was going to happen, but I didn't think we were going to get this inconsistent policy. And this guy's kind of a jerk. So that's happening, but you don't think it has any effect on him? I don't think he cares. I mean, people keep thinking, oh, the Chinese stock market is weaker than we thought. There's going to be economic stimulus in China. And then nothing happens. Oh, you know, he can't leave zero COVID on that long. It's terrible. And he does. He shouldn't crack down on his own private sector. And he does. And this happens again and again and again. Every time someone thinks Xi Jinping will see the light as this other observer puts it, not not Xi, but somebody watching Xi, and he'll do what I want him to. He'll be nicer to private companies, foreign Mm -hmm. and domestic. It just doesn't happen. He's He's been in power 11 years now. I think we know who he is. He's not interested in this stuff. And of the American companies that, that do a lot of business in China, which is your your favorite because they've woken up to this and are, 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 are decoupling? <laughs> Again, to stress the positive. I'm always not, trying to find somebody who can say I'm something nice about, Derek. not really willing to commit to a favorite <laughs> among U.S. companies because I'm afraid they're just going to reverse. Look, a lot of U.S. companies are being smart here and that, you know, starts with Apple. I'll pick out Apple because it's an A company. And I could think of a big Z company. I would pick a Z <laughs> company, but I can't. Sorry. They're thinking, oh, you know, we're going to stay in business in China, but I'd like to have some business in India or Indonesia or Mexico or Vietnam or Bangladesh, the diversification. But, I, you know, as you do, I spend a lot of time talking to American corporates 
And on the financial side, they don't want to leave China. On the tech side, they say they can't, which is not true, but they don't want to leave China. And you get the impression that if Xi Jinping were to just kind of disappear from the scene and China would go back to the China of old with its more business-friendly policies, these firms would be right back to where they were. Hmm. So you said at a meeting, we, we, we sometimes have meetings at AI hmm. with various yeah. scholars. We all gathered around. This was a lunch meeting, and Derek was a very <laughs> prominent participant in all the discussions, and I joined it. And it was really a joy. To be around all the major foreign defense policy scholars in one in one setting, and you said, "Hey guys, watch out for this." And the fact you put out on the table was that the trade deficit with China was going was lower than it was ever during the Trump administration, and was going down, right. which is what the Trump administration said was their goal, and is what the goal of the people of the sort of China hawks want: less dependence on China, smaller trade deficit with China. So tell us about that and what you think is the significance of that. So, you know, economists always run away with it's too soon to tell. But, you know, just to be clear, it's too soon to tell. (laughs) What we see so far this year is a surprisingly sharp drop in the trade deficit. Now, why is it surprisingly sharp? Some people thought we were going to have a recession this year, and we haven't had one yet. Well, if you had a recession... Recessions tend to kill U.S. demand for foreign goods. It's one of the weird things about protectionists. They're like, I want imports to drop. I'm like, well, that happens when our economy is suffering, so maybe you don't really want imports to drop. In this case, our economy is not suffering that badly. Not that it's perfect, but imports from China are dropping pretty sharply. And that that combination we weren't expecting. And so there's this question of, well, I mean... Is this faster progress toward decoupling than we thought? That would be encouraging. We want to be less dependent on China. We don't want to be less dependent on China for toys, but we want to be less dependent on China for some important goods. And as you said at that lunch, Robert, this is politically very interesting for the Biden administration. If you finish 2023, and we only have five months worth of data, so it's too early, you finish 2023, with a much with the lowest trade deficit we've had since whatever 2012 2013 you have a big tool in your political toolkit to go at the Trump administration and say you know who won on China me not you mm-hmm. you talked i won there's a big qualifier to all this which is we don't know yet how much in the way of transshipment is going on meaning the chinese goods are not coming directly to the us but are they just going through South Korea and coming to the U.S.? Are they going through Israel? Are they going through Germany? So we have to, we, you know, that's why it's too soon to tell. It's a very interesting development if it's really the case that we're importing less from China. It's much less interesting if we're importing less from China because it's just going through other countries as a pit stop before it gets here. But the follow-up question on the policy of the two administration, my understanding from the, the free traders is that, as the way they would put it, is Biden's just as bad as Trump. Have they changed policy from Trump on China trade? Have they made it more aggressive in in reducing imports from China and more protectionist or less? I'm so glad you asked this question. (laughs) How long do we have? Look, the tariffs are the same. It was a conscious political decision by the Biden administration not to mess with tariffs because it takes it off the table as a political issue, right? What, what do you mean when I'm soft on China? I did the same thing you did. Yeah. So everyone expecting that change, they weren't thinking about political reality. There are a couple of things the Biden administration has said it was going to do that would be tougher than Trump and I think would be wise to do. One of them was they put interim controls on U.S. semiconductor and semiconductor manufacturing equipment exports to China, trying to control advanced technology shipments and semiconductors to China. But they did that in October, and we still don't have the final controls. And there are all these rumors that they're going to give you know exceptions to really large producers Mm -hmm. around the world, in which case that would be a waste of time. 
We've also heard for two years now that the Biden administration is concerned about U.S. investment in China that supports advanced technology. Also, the correct thing to do, as called for by some AEI scholars several years <laughs> earlier. Yeah. But we don't see that either. They've been talking about it for two years and they're still not acting. So from the free trade side, the Biden administration is just as good, just as bad, whatever you want to say. As the Trump administration, they're talking about doing more and, in my view, much smarter policies than across-the-board tariffs, but they haven't done it yet. They look a lot like the Trump administration on China economic policy. Hmm. I'm curious how you think about, in the world of decoupling, it seems like there's a divide between the economic scholars at AEI and the foreign policy scholars, and you kind of sit at the juncture of those two with expertise in both. I'm curious how you think about the costs associated with decoupling. It seems like something that everyone is nominally for, but then, you know, doesn't want to actually talk about the burden that that would put on companies, on citizens. And you're one of the few people that has talked about that a little bit, that this was something that we would have to kind of a price we'd have to be willing to pay. How do you think about that from kind of an economic perspective? So let's start with, I've done different estimates of the cost. And from a national U.S. perspective, it's not large. It's just not. I mean, you can say, what's the cost if we don't allow any American investment in China? What's the cost? Hmm. Not large. If we had across the board 50% tariffs, what's the cost? It's not large. But of course, that isn't the way it actually works, right? Because the whole country isn't interested in this issue. The people who are interested in the issue are the people who are going to pay the costs and have already Whoa, paid. Hold on there. What about consumers? Are you are you telling me that, that, that a really aggressive protectionist policy on China, even more than we currently have, would have no additional oh, no, cost I, I for low-income consumers I, I didn't who say, buy all those cheap goods I, I at Walmart? I didn't no say, additional okay, costs? First of all, you went from consumers <laughs> to low-income consumers. Yeah. And second, I didn't I'm say have, I didn't say no costs, but you know, personal consumption in the U.S. runs at sixteen trillion dollars. When people say, "Oh no, we're paying fifty billion dollars more for Chinese goods because of tariffs," I say, "I don't care." Oh, yeah. right? <laughs> fifty billion, sixteen trillion doesn't re- doesn't really add up. Now, when you get into Okay, but what about particular groups, particular groups of consumers who might pay more for clothing, for example, who are lower income, or particular tech firms like Qualcomm, who are really, I mean, Qualcomm gets the majority of its revenue from China. And that could lead to an effect on the NASDAQ. If Qualcomm mm-hmm. stock were to suffer, you could, you could get selling pressure on the NASDAQ. There are actual costs, which, as Phoebe said, is why we talk and don't do anything. On the foreign policy, and, and that's- and, what, and I also read today that, there, that, the inc- that China- not growing and having trouble is leading them to flood our markets with even cheaper goods, which is putting downward pressure on inflation. What's wrong with that? Okay, okay, <laughs> okay. Let's let's get you out to a, an auto factory in the United States and see what they think. the The biggest example that is true: weak Chinese economy, weak demand at home, Chinese production capacity doesn't go away. Stuff goes overseas. The business example right now of that is autos. Chinese autos are flooding the global market. You know, seventy percent. Trying annual. to kill the German automobile. Yes, it's going to hit the Europeans like Japan hit us earlier. It's it's led by EVs, electric vehicles. It's going to be very hard for the Biden administration to say, "Hey, I want a thriving electric vehicle industry in the United States." When the Chinese are like, "Here's an electric vehicle for a dollar," <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> because I have to make it because I can't fire anyone and I can't sell it in the United States, so I get a dollar out of it. It's it's yeah. it's better. The answer is we don't like in our own economy subsidized underpricing. We think it's anti-competitive, uh-huh. and that's what the Chinese do. Mm-hmm. And we're going to get a wave of that c- coming our way. And I've I've lost track of all the things I wanted to say in response <laughs> to Phoebe's question. Yeah. 
Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> I apologize. No, you talked about NASDAQ taking. Oh, uh, so, so, there so, will be so, so we, there is going to be an economic cost. Mm-hmm. And we do have a lot of people in Washington, Democratic and Republican, conservative and liberal. I say that as a conservative who want to be tough on China. And then when you say, well, this is what's going to happen, they're like, well, I, I don't know if I like that, mm-hmm. you know. So there's a cost and people have to accept that. The foreign policy side comes back with, and I think this is the most basic statement, you guys got to stop acting like it's 20 years ago. 20 years ago, economics was everything because we did not have a global, dangerous political rival. And now we do. They're easily the second largest economy in the world. They're closer to us than they are to Japan. They're the biggest exporter. They're the biggest market in some areas. And they're run by a cult of personality dictator who never wants to leave, just like the guy in North Korea, only much more dangerous. So you can't act like it's 20, it's 2003 and economics is the only thing we think about. You have to think about the world differently than you did. Hmm. Okay, so having said that, and just exactly the way you said it, what do you say to people who who express some concern, like Larry Summers or Phil Graham, that all this hockey talk is going to get us into a war in China, or yeah. a war with China? Now Larry Summers is an expert on <laughs> war. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. expert on everything. <laughs> I am also not an expert on war, but fortunately I have wonderful AEA colleagues mm-hmm. like Dan Blumenthal and Zach Cooper on the New China Playbook. Yes, there you go. <laughs> the New China Playbook. Who are Check more experts Is on... the New China Playbook, does it have a, a playbook for keeping us out of war with China? That is, that's a good question. The answer is no, because I don't think we're any closer to war with China than we have been. I think there are a bunch of people in the U.S. making a big fuss over nothing. And I've already given one reason for that, which is economically, we haven't done very much different in the past six years. So how did we suddenly get closer to war because of our economic ties? And on the other side, the main reason we might go to war with China is not that we're going to start the war. It's not that Taiwan's going to start the war. It's that China's going to start the war. And so you have to have, when you say we're getting closer to war, you should be saying, what can we do about it that isn't just giving the Chinese everything they want? Because that's really the only reason way you can really not have a war with a dictator like Xi Jinping. So the, the answer here is that guy is bringing us more is bringing us closer to war and I, I have a very simple reason why he's not going to have the economy that he likes he's not going to have the big rich prosperous economy that he might want he doesn't he's not really even trying so what's his great achievement what's the great thing that makes xi jinping better than previous chinese leaders and the obvious thing is reunification with taiwan mm-hmm. so you want to avoid a war you just say well sell out the taiwanese and there are people who'll do that. Mm-hmm. We at AI who believe in freedom will yeah, not do that. Absolutely not. And the, short of that, there's not much we're doing, very little we're doing, mm-hmm. that's increasing the probability of a war. Okay. That's Can you right. contextualize the weakness of the Chinese economy? I mean, this is kind of your bread and butter with Chinese GDP. And I know you have always said that news media gets this wrong consistently every time. How weak is the Chinese economy now, and how do you see that differently than most people? So I don't think, I should say before we get into now, Mm -hmm. there's a paper that AEI just published, not by me, in fact, by someone I've never spoken to, is a long-term prediction of the course of the Chinese economy. Yes, by Jesus. Just emailed him today, didn't know who he was, completely independent researchers. That's fantastic. I'm having lunch with him. He was almost on the spot. You want to join us? He should. (laughs) I'd love to join you. He should should come down and do this with me. Have you read the paper? I did. Is it any good? 
it agrees with me, so yes. <laughs> so the, a completely independent line of research doing things differently, not that differently, but somewhat differently than the way I do it, got the same long-term prognosis, hmm. which is we're about 20 years away from a pivot where the Chinese stop growing, in my case, in his case, grow slower than the U.S. He's probably being a little bit more accurate than I am, but I'm trying to make a, a, a policy point. And they're going to be growing slowly all through that period. So a lot of people, like they're overreacting to India right now, overreacted to China five years ago and are, mm. are having a, I, I'm sorry, I apologize for this. They're having a come to Jesus moment. <laughs> <laughs> In the short term, if I'm never brought back on the podcast, you'll know why it just happened. In the Jesus <laughs> by many people. Is there What's that? <laughs> oh, it's, is there an issue? That's a phrase that is often used. I know, but it was a terrible double entendre because of the author of the paper. Oh, 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 oh. That's how dumb I am. I missed that part, even though I'm the one that knew his name, and you didn't. The China's economy now is not that weak. We had What we had was people in, in 2022 saying, oh, when zero COVID is over, there's going to be a boom. There's going to be a boom. And, and people like me saying, I don't understand why there would be a boom. Chinese consumers are notoriously cautious. Mm -hmm. They're not like, oh, great, everything's fine now. I'm going to rush out and spend money. They've never done that. They saved their money. So there isn't a boom. And what you have is a bunch of people on Wall Street, including people who might call themselves friends of AI, although not friends of mine, who, <laughs> who are like really disappointed mm -hmm. because they called a boom. And they're like, oh, now the economy's really struggling. And really, the economy's been exactly what should have been expected, and they've switched from boom to bust. So, you know, it's not going to be a great economy again for any extended period of time. They're highly indebted because they wasted a ton of money. They have an aging and shrinking labor force. They won't liberalize land ownership, which would help their rural population immensely. They won't do it. And Xi Jinping spent 2018, 2019 attacking the private tech sector. So that that's the killer on innovation. So it's not a great economy, and it's going to get worse. Mm -hmm. But mostly people are reacting now to, I thought there was going to be a big you know, expansion, and I could make lots of money, and they're mad that they can't. Taiwan. So the story today was that when Secretary of State was when the Secretary of State was over in in China, he they talked about Taiwan and the issue they talked about was what will the United States do with regard to the elections coming up in Taiwan? And I immediately thought, oh no, the Taiwanese are going to have an election and a pro unification candidate's going to win. Is that possible? It's pretty unlikely. I mean, first of all, the whole Taiwanese political spectrum has shifted away from unification. And guess who's responsible for that? Xi Jinping yeah, has right. made the idea of unification with China much less appealing than it was 10 or 15 years ago, especially with his treatment of Hong Kong, which was supposed to have its its own system respected, according to, to Deng Xiaoping in a 50-year agreement. And he was just like, no, nah, forget it. Yeah. So what you would see is the sort of more pro-China party now actually has the positions of the anti-China party 10 years ago. Everybody has shifted. Even then, I don't think the pro-China candidate, whose name, of course, escapes me because I can't even name the, remember the name of authors of AI papers, but the DPP is the, the, the party in power and the KMT is the party out of power. The, that election will be determined primarily by economics. Taiwan is very sensitive to the world economy. Their economy is struggling a little bit now. But it's not struggling a lot, and the election is pretty soon. It would take a, a an unexpected economic blow, I think, for the DPP to lose power. It's possible. I'm not a Taiwan political expert. But I do know that even if they do lose power, you're not going to get a pro-unification candidate. You'll get somebody who's a little friendlier to China. And, of course, mm -hmm. the Chinese 
that's what they want. They're not looking for, oh, in 2025, there'll be unification. They're looking for the wind to blow back in their direction. It's been blowing against them, and they want it to blow back the other way. So as a, as you won't be worried if the if the power party in power loses to a, a, a slightly more friendly toward China party. I would not be worried. Again, I am not a Taiwanese political expert to know if there are some very subtle shifts they would undertake. But I do see the polling. You know, we, we do we, we look at polling a lot here on will you be would you be willing to fight if China invaded? And sometimes the results of that poll, those polls are not that great. But do you have a favorable opinion on China is very low. Okay. So it'd be very hard for any new any new candidate, whoever it is, and Tsai Ing-wen, the current president, is required to leave office. So whoever replaces her is gonna would have a very difficult time being really pro-China. Mm-hmm. And and is there any? So there's no way that China could reunite with Taiwan in the way that he wants without using armed armed forces. Well, not in the medium term. I don't want to start. I, I barely have a good sense of Taiwanese politics in the 2024 election in 2025. I don't know what's going to going on in 2030. I will say what I said before. They have been moving steadily in the wrong direction for peaceful reunification yes, right. mm-hmm. because they're, you know, they're more aggressive, they're less trustworthy, and the Chinese economy is weaker. I mean, the big draw for Taiwan was, hey, let's get in on this booming economy. Well, if you undermine your economy and then you complement that by being nasty around the world, you know, you're not pulling Taiwan the way you want to pull them. So if, if you said by a certain date, by 2027, by 2028, I'd say I don't see how that's possible. It'd have to be force. Long term, I don't know. It would help a lot if Xi Jinping would just go away. So <laughs> you have been the strongest scholar at AEI and maybe in the country on, on the issues with regard to China, focused on China, and that's great. We're now involved in a war in Ukraine, and, and some people say that's a big distraction from our real real adversary, and that's China, and we should we should stop this and just focus on China exclusively. And others say the only way we really send a message to China that's meaningful is if we win the war in Ukraine or the United States and, or Ukraine wins the war against Russia in, in Ukraine. Where, what say you? I think it's closer to the second one. And I, maybe I'm being optimistic here. <laughs> I think we can walk and chew gum at the same time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think we can help Ukraine and prepare for what we don't want, the worst case, in the Pacific at the same time. We have to decide to do that. We have to have leaders you know, nationally uh, in D.C., outside of D.C., who say, no, this is really worthwhile to the United States. But if we decide to do that, we're certainly able. So I don't think there's a, oh, if you, everything you do to help Ukraine, you, you're not doing in the Pacific. So, you're, you know, it, that, it's over. We have to do both. I do think the second point where if we abandon Ukraine or effectively abandon Ukraine, not not formally, but, you know, sort of let them snatch mm-hmm you know, defeat from the jaws of victory or or something like victory, the Chinese are going to take a look at that and say, oh, yeah, you know, you'll stick by Taiwan for a while, but we're going to care about Taiwan forever. And you're not. You're going to you're going to get tired Mm -hmm. of it and give up. So showing staying power in Ukraine is valuable as a signal to China. It's not going to determine their choices. Their choices are going to be determined inside China. But it, it is valuable as a signal. It does let them know look, we're, we're capable of standing by our friends, and Taiwan is a closer friend than Ukraine. No offense to Ukraine. Historically, Taiwan is a closer friend than Ukraine. And I, I, don't, I don't accept the argument that, like, we can only do so many things and we're not capable of handling both Ukraine and Taiwan at the same time. Mm-hmm. 
So part of our New China Playbook series is that we're having top thinkers on China come speak here and kind of be in conversation, field hard questions from our scholars. We have Ambassador Nikki Haley coming this week. I'm curious how you think about the Republican field for 2024. I know that, I mean, Trump gave a lot of attention to China, but then did everything the wrong way. If you were advising a Republican candidate on 2024, what would you have them think about doing in regard to China? Well, I, 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 you know, the Republican candidates would have to decide that they want to break with the Trump administration's record. It's not really breaking what, with what Trump says now, because now he says he's going to do all these tough things that he didn't <laughs> do when he was president. But you'd really have to break with the Trump administration's record. And the example I'll give, the biggest example, because it's fun, unpleasant for America, but very clear numbers, is when President Trump took office, the amount of U.S. investment in China, of, of investment in Chinese stocks and bonds, was $368 billion. And when he left, it was $1.15 trillion. What kind of a trade war is that? Mm. What kind of a competition is that? What kind of anything is that except, except the U.S. helping China with a lot of money? And so I'd really like a Republican candidate to pick that or another topic and say, I am not going to be like the Trump administration on this really important issue. We're not going to help the Chinese Communist Party. We're not going to help this dictator. We haven't seen Republican candidates being willing to break with the Trump administration on China. Mm -hmm. I am not an expert yeah, yeah. on all U.S. politics on China. So that's what I would be looking for, someone to step up and say, you talked the right game on China, but you did not play the right game. Here's the proof, and I'm going to be different. Hmm. Okay, this has been great conversation, as all conversations with Derek always are, <laughs> and conversations which Phoebe is participating <laughs> as well. I've been lackluster in my questioning, but I do have one final question, and that is, is China suffering anything or, or taking a hit because of their support for Putin, especially in the wake of this recent chaotic weekend where, you know, there was, a, you know, an army <laughs> traveling north to challenge Putin in Moscow and the, the Wagner group turned around and went back, but clearly something's wrong in Russia. Why doesn't China look to the world or look to their own people as attaching itself to a corpse? That's an excellent question. And I, I think the AEI scholars here who work on both China and Russia were aware that when the war started, there were these Chinese elites, you know, not not like, you know, some Chinese professor at a university in in. Guanxi or whatever, but these Beijing Chinese elites coming around saying, I don't know why we're so close to the Russians. I don't know why we're so close to the Russians. Because there hadn't been a policy yet that was really been set. And so they could still say those sorts of things. Now they're kind of stuck. I mean, dictators can't be wrong. They can't reverse face. They can't, I mean, she did it with, with zero COVID. It would be very difficult for him to do it on, on the Russia side. So all those Chinese elites, those well-informed, smart Chinese elites who were saying we're, we're back on the wrong horse here, this was a mistake, he didn't warn us, he didn't, you know, why are we being loyal to him, he just lashed out on his own, they're stuck with it now because Xi Jinping keeps saying, you know, Vlad's my friend, he's my buddy, he's another dictator like me, we're, we all stick together, whatever the reasons are, and honestly, I don't know what the reasons are. Xi Jinping has a pretty realistic, nasty view of the world. And he seems to have left that behind in his support for, for the Russians. So mm. this cost them with domestic opposition. I don't mean any sort of domestic opposition is going to overthrow Xi, but people saying, what are you doing? Yep, yep. It's cost them with their relations with Europe from the, from the aggressiveness. 
I think it's now going to cost them around the world because you look like you have a weak partner that you don't know what you're doing. You look incompetent by association. So countries that still believed in 2021 that China was rising and we really need to be on the Chinese bandwagon, this is another blow to that reputation. Like they don't, they don't seem to know what they're doing. Okay, I guess I just have to follow up one more because I wrote something recently about it. But did you must think that Germany could do more to oppose China? Don't you? Yeah, of course. German policy has improved. I, I traveled to Germany for the with the support of the State Department in, I want to say, 2017, and told them, you guys really need to rethink the situation you're in because the Chinese are coming for German manufacturing. And they were basically like, oh, no, they, for U.S. manufacturing, sure, but not for us. <laughs> okay, well, <laughs> when, all, when your auto companies all collapse, you know, maybe you'll think again. They're still too pro-China. They have not been able to move against the, the really big German companies having very important relationships with the Chinese, Volkswagen, Bayer, you know, there, there are a bunch of them. They have not been able to shift. They've moved a little bit in our direction, which is good, but they could do more. I'm, I hate to say this, but I hope China is kind of showing Germany its spots with the support of Russia, and we'll get a, a, a faster shift from the Germans. Okay. This has been great. Thank you, Phoebe. Thank you, you, Derek. Thank you. See you next time. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the discussion today. Please remember to subscribe and rate the podcast. Feel free to send us any feedback or suggestions at banter at AEI.org.